This is Arab Talk on KPOO 89.5 FM in San Francisco. This is Arab Talk with Jess and Jamal. I'm Jess Ghanem. And I'm Jamal Dejani. Jamal, it's another kind of fast-breaking week of news and information. We've got a great show today. We're, we're going to be watching a very compelling interview that you did with Ronnie Barkan about medical apartheid and the Israeli regime, which is really fantastic. But we're still in the midst of lots of chaotic unfoldings in terms of the pandemic and the COVID-19 virus. Lots of information, both good and bad, out there, which we may cover, depending on the time we have today. And we are facing down, and we'll talk about this later on in the show, we're facing down the cancer of white supremacy uh, in our political system with Marjorie Taylor Greene and the Republicans' party's refusal to acknowledge the cancer within the party and within this country. So we have a lot of great things to talk about. It's going to be a very fast show, Jamal, so let's get right to it. That's right, Jess. A lot of news. Um, First, we're going to listen to a conversation with Rani uh, Barkan. Uh, He's going to pick up on our actually last week's talk, uh, which he watched and, and he liked, uh, and that was when we reported on the uh, Israeli human rights organization, Beth Salem's report uh, calling Israel uh, an apartheid state for the first time. But he also just discusses uh, medical apartheid and the role of uh, pharma, big pharma companies in, in this. So let's uh, watch Rani. Last week, we began the discussion about the Israeli human rights uh, organization, B'Tselem, which issued a report titled A Regime of Jewish Supremacy from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea. This is apartheid. Rani Barkan, a longtime Jewish-Israeli activist and math teacher who was raised in Ranana near Tel Aviv, is a co-founder of Baikot from Within, He describes himself as a privileged Israeli Jew living at belly of the apartheid beast. Welcome again to Arab Talk, Rani. Thank you for having me, Jamal. So uh, I'm sure you read the report. This was big news. This is the largest Israeli, uh, I guess, nonprofit uh, human rights organization. And it took them a long time to kind of call a spade a spade use the word, the, the kind of like the feared A word, apartheid. I mean, it took them many years to do that, even though they've been, in my opinion, doing a very good job documenting the abuses. Uh, why do you think it took them this long? I think that what we're seeing is actually a, a change in public perception about uh, the Zionist-Palestinian conflict, if you can even call it a conflict, or what the Zionist race state is all about. And uh, this, because of the change happening outside, thanks mostly to the BDS campaign, the very successful Boycott the Western Sanctions campaign against Israel, this also affects, in a sense, in a way, uh, also Israelis, Israelis themselves, 
who still cling on very strongly to the notion of apartheid, including organizations like B'Tselem. B'Tselem are, um, have a tradition of, uh, let's say, let's put it this way. As you mentioned, they are documenting violations in uh, what are regarded as occupied Palestinian territories, the West Bank and Gaza Strip, and they do a, a very good and credible job there. At the same time, historically, they didn't have a very good uh, political stance. They were ardent liberal Zionists. Um, and and but they had to transition over time, and we see this also happening with other liberal Zionists out there, people who consider themselves both humanist and Zionist at the same time. I mean, this is a bit of an oxymoron; it cannot coexist. And the more that Israel exposes itself, the more that the BDS campaign is successful in exposing what Israel, the Zionist state, is all about. The more that these people find themselves in a bind, and they have to re-adapt and also reconsider their own positions. And this report by B'Tselem, uh, I have to commend them for, a, it is not a perfect report and I have my criticism on it and I'm sure we'll discuss some of it. At the same time, uh, it is a big step forward. And then I have to give them credit where credit is due and we will discuss the criticism in a bit. I will only mention that in the past they have participated even in Israeli Hasbara and Israeli propaganda, Zionist propaganda. They have been obviously, as we know, um, communicating a lot with the Israeli authorities, the, the military and so on, and, and only more recently they said we are no longer seeking the approval of the uh, Israeli uh, military authorities. Uh, they have been speaking the false discourse uh, about Israel and Palestine as if these are two separate entities. And what this report shows that actually these are not two separate entities. Um, and yes, basically, I would say in a nutshell that they have been documenting violations of human rights uh, very well. As far as their political stance goes, that is a whole other issue. So, so they have been doing a good job exactly because their activity was limited to the West Bank and Gaza, and they, it was limited to documentation of these violations. The moment that they spoke about their political stance, then I was not supporting them at all. And I am more inclined to support them these days than in the past. How is the Israeli public receiving this? I know, uh, at least here in the United States, uh, usually news like this will be kind of, uh, you know, brushed under under the table. And uh, it made headlines, which I was surprised because uh, usually the media here in conjunction with uh, the Congress and wherever they try to kind of shelter Israel more than the Israeli media itself, right? They're more protective. But it made headlines that on, on mainstream media and other uh, sites saying that there was this such a report. And, but it didn't create a lot of debate. Is there a debate now created within the Israeli society? So first of all, obviously, the people that we should be listening to are the Palestinians, the ones who have, who have been subjugated and oppressed and terrorized ever since the creation of the state of Israel. Uh, but it seems like, especially in the West, uh, it is more, uh, it is easier for uh, Israeli voices uh, to be heard. Uh, and then unfortunately, the audience is very inter more interested in that than hearing what the subjugated, oppressed Palestinians have to say. So, so putting BDS at the forefront, this is obviously putting uh, um, the Palestinian voice uh, at the forefront. Um, and as far as the B'Tselem goes, uh, I think that um, when, when criticism of the very character of the state of Israel comes from Israelis themselves, we know, I know 
personally, that this uh, has an effect. And with, uh, with um, basically my privileged status here, because the whole system is built in order to give privileges to people like myself at the expense of the others, especially if they are the indigenous people to that land. Uh, so because I was born into this situation where I am privileged uh, among the privileged group, it also means that I carry more responsibility and I have to speak up. And uh, so this is what I do, and I'm happy that the term is doing uh, quite the same, that they feel a certain responsibility to speak up about Israeli violations. And it is especially important when they are finally, for the first time, speaking about the very character of the Zionist race state, and not only this or that type of uh, violation that uh, it carries out since its very foundation. So, of course, we hear this from people like yourself, brave people like yourself. Uh, we haven't been hearing this much from uh, politicians like, uh, you know, I mean, we hear it from the def kind of defunct Labour Party because they're non-existence as far as power. And formerly, the late uh, Miron Benvenisti and Avram Berg, uh, he used the word uh, apartheid. So, I mean... Do you see any, any impact from this that's going to change the position of politicians within the government, members of the Knesset, outside the, of course, Arab or Palestinian uh, members there? So, first of all, about the so-called Israeli left. There is no Israeli left and never, ever existed. What you have are two different voices coming from the Zionist sphere. One is uh, what I call the honest Zionists the ones who are racist and proud of it, they are the right wing. And then you have uh, the, the dishonest ones, the so-called liberal Zionists, the ones who try to square the circle, try to claim that they are both Zionist and humanist at the same time, and this doesn't work. And this is the entirety of uh, the so-called Israeli left. And I'm very happy to see it shrinking dramatically. This is a very good sign. And these people who have been uh, and basically identify, identifying themselves as being uh, Zionist left, et cetera, liberal Zionists, uh, they are, as I mentioned before, they are uh, in a bind and they have to reconsider their position. So all of these are very good signs, the shrinking of the so-called left, et cetera. Now, uh, at the same time, these people are still far from being allies. They are still far from actually uh, supporting Palestinian rights and supporting the notion, the radical notion of equality in this land. So when we talk about apartheid, and this is very important for me to mention, and this is one of the main types or main criticism that I have about uh, the Bezalem report. When they refer to apartheid, and it's very good that they also talk about apartheid in South Africa and they uh, make a point of that. At the same time, for, for, first of all, they only speak about 14 million people who are uh, basically living in this territory in what is regarded as Israel-Palestine. However, they are systematically missing out the most important element, which are those who are in forced exile for the past seven decades. There are right. 6 million Palestinian refugees who have been basically Israel, the Zionist race state, and it is a race state by definition from the, from the get-go. It was founded on the basis of ethnically cleansing the land and then doing exactly two things. And that's all that this state is about, making sure that those who have been expelled will never be allowed to come back. And therefore, these people are refugees to this day, seven decades later, 6 million of them. And the second thing that they did was to uh, in, 
to establish a whole legal system that neatly falls under the legal definition of the crime of apartheid, um, and to establish a whole legal system that will make sure that those who remained on their land will never ever be allowed equal standing. Therefore, I was born into a situation where I am the privileged at their expense. So when we talk about apartheid, first and foremost, we have to talk about the six billion Palestinians who are in the Shatati and who are in the diaspora for one and only one reason, for the crime of wrong ethnicity, because they were born to the wrong ethnicity as far as the Zionist race state is concerned. Then there is also apartheid, which is applied in different means by, uh, within what is regarded as Israel proper or what we call Palestine 48. And obviously there's a much clearer case of apartheid, uh, which is very um, evident when you go to uh, places like Hebron, for example, Khalil, uh, where you have even two, and, and throughout the entirety of the West Bank, uh, where you have two different legal systems applied for people based on their ethnicity, one for the Israeli settlers, the other for the Palestinians, and Gaza is a whole concentration camp. The Gaza ghetto uh, is uh, not only, there is not only apartheid being uh, practiced there, but uh, this is a monstrous and inhumane siege that is being carried out uh, because these people who are the majority of them are refugees from here, from Palestine 48, 70% of, of Gazans are refugees. And these people have been crammed in there exactly in order not to allow them to come back home. And if you remember, only recently there was the Gaza March of Return, and even organizations like B'Tselem totally uh, distorted what this was, what this demonstration was about. Uh, it was as if Gazans were demonstrating against the harsh and brutal military uh, siege, but this was only part of it. The whole idea of the March of Return is the return, their demand to go back home. And this is the key issue that we have to talk about, the refugees, the right of return, the six millions who are denied the right to come back home from the diaspora. And obviously there are more refugees here on this land, even internal refugees that are denied the right to come back home. So, so when we talk about a liberal Zionist acknowledging finally at long last that Israel is an apartheid state and it is an apartheid state from, uh, the very, from its very foundation, we have to insist that they will also acknowledge that it is not only apartheid because of what is happening in the West Bank and Gaza, it is not only apartheid because the whole uh, establishment, the, the very Knesset, the Israeli parliament is an apartheid parliament. It's, it's very institutions are all about maintaining apartheid, but it is also and especially an apartheid state because it denies people from even living here based on their ethnicity. So you talk, about the, you talk about the institutions, which brings me to the other point. Last time, uh, actually, we tried to bring you on the show, uh, but you were on your way to get your uh, second shot, uh, booster shot uh, for the coronavirus. I haven't gotten mine yet here, and I'm older than you in the United States, so Israel is kind of moving very fast. And um, I wanted to talk about to you then about a statement that was made by the Israeli Health Minister uh, uh, Yuli Edelstein, when he was asked why Israel wasn't giving the Palestinians in the West Bank, also including them in, in, in the vaccination process. And then he said something like, uh, oh, uh, this is like uh, the Palestinian, I'm not responsible just the same way the Palestinian health minister is not uh, responsible for taking care of the dolphins in the Mediterranean. 
Like, you know, I mean, it made just this, take, you know, washing his hands from this uh, responsibility. And then uh, they came under attack. I mean, main, meaning the Israeli health ministry from within Israel, from overseas. He was quoted all over. So to fix that a little bit, I noticed a few days later that Israel decided to give 5,000 doses uh, of the coronavirus uh, Palestine, uh, to, to coronavirus vaccine to Palestinians, uh, basically healthcare workers. I mean, you know, if we look at the main composition of the population, what's 5,000 5, vaccines going to do to a population which is half, if not more, of the entire population of the people living between the Mediterranean and uh, the uh, Jordan River. Yes, uh, you're absolutely right. Uh, first of all, it is, it is almost a joke to offer 5,000 uh, vaccinations for uh, this population. And besides, it also uh, plays into this whole false discourse, first of all, as if Israel and Palestine are two separate entities which is the exact opposite. Israel and Palestine have the exact same spot of land. Uh, and and, we, and secondly, uh, the question is, who is responsible for the people living on that land? And for Israel, it is very convenient to throw the blame and the responsibility on, uh, you know, the so-called Palestinian so-called authority or, or the, those uh, Hamas who controls Gaza, et cetera, rather than acknowledging their basic responsibility under international law and obviously morally and otherwise uh, for all, all the people living on this land. Um, now, when when we look at the situation, first of all, obviously this vaccination case is very is 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 crystal clear. Okay, it is like what I said before about two different legal systems uh, applied on the same spot of land. If a Palestinian and an Israeli settler in the West Bank uh, are involved in, for example, a car accident, there will be two different uh, legal, um, basically, procedures being taken, put in effect, one for the Palestinian, the other for the Israeli. One will go to a civilian court and see a civilian judge, the other will go to a military court, see a military judge, etc. Um, the same rationale also applies to the whole issue of uh, vaccinations, where uh, basically you have neighbors uh, the Israeli settlers and uh, the Palestinians in the West Bank, and one has full access to full medical care, etc., including vaccinations, which even in the U.S., you guys are struggling to to gain access to. And then the the, the neighboring Palestinian uh, cannot get access to any of that. And and obviously we know that the virus does not uh, regard uh, borders. Uh, we know that very well. Uh, we learned that from experience in the past year. But I'd like to say something else, not only about the vaccinations, but about the whole, actually, what is happening on a daily basis. On a daily basis, there is medical apartheid, and we have to, uh, to acknowledge that. Um, and Israel, I don't think that we have enough time to go into all the different um, ways in which Israel applies medical apartheid against the people, uh, the Palestinians, especially the people uh, in Gaza. Uh, but basically, they condition medical access on different, uh, on different considerations, uh, uh, political and other considerations. 
Um, we know that uh, Israel uh, takes no responsibility whatsoever for the people there, and there, and also, by the way, they are not so benevolent, and they don't just offer uh, medical access or treatment, etc. It is all paid for by uh, the ones, uh, you know, the the so-called rulers in the in the West Bank or Gaza. Uh, now, but other than that. When we talk about vaccination, when we talk about what is going on on a daily basis, we have to also put into this picture uh, the role of the international pharmaceutical companies. There is a, a, a group, a, a collective called Pharma Israel, uh, including, by the way, Pfizer and, and AstraZeneca, among others. And these uh, pharmaceutical companies, uh, they have this collective in Israel, which is supposedly, which is supposed to, to advance uh, medical access and so on. And they are the ones who are responsible for uh, basically uh, delivering uh, the pharmaceuticals to the West Bank in Gaza. So they have uh, their uh, employees who, who take care of that. And, and it, is, it is them, they are let's say at the very least, facilitating a, a policy of medical apartheid uh, by basically being, being these, um, um, you know, these, these are the gatekeepers. These are the ones who choose, who decide whether the, the, the medication will uh, be transferred or not. Uh, and I call on all these pharmaceutical companies to, and all people of the world basically to approach these companies, they're global, not their Israeli uh, uh, branches, uh, and demand that, uh, because they do have a say in that, demand that they make sure that uh, both the people in the West Bank and Gaza have the exact same access uh, to pharmaceuticals as uh, us people in Palestine 48. I think you're making a very, uh very good point, actually. No one is talking about this because we've been, people are talking about, yeah, medical apartheid, Israel practices medical apartheid. And I was thinking, yeah, sure, I know the whole system, you know, uh, you know there is, is, Israel has a very good uh, healthcare system. And one, one thing they try to do, especially for Palestinians living in Jerusalem with the Palestinian ID cards, is uh, kind of one incentive for them is to get rid of them. Like, let's say if somebody decides to move to Ramallah, they strip them from their Palestinian ID card. And, and the reason they do that, aside from just getting rid of them, period, but also to get them off the, uh, the healthcare system. Right. So they don't want them to be, you know, that's that's the only benefit probably for Palestinians living in 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 Jerusalem. And they are they pay the Israeli tax, the Arnona and everything else. But if they can't afford living in Jerusalem and many of them, especially the young people, they move out outside the borders, the area, because it's cheaper for them to live in in Ram or somewhere else like outside or, or Ramallah. And they lose their identity card. And one of the main purpose for doing that is to get them off the the uh, national healthcare system. But what you're saying, which is very important because a lot of people know that Israel, when it comes to, for, for example, the vaccine from uh, Pfizer and, and Moderna, they're, they're being used as a testing ground. So they're getting it for free. They're getting it for free because Israel you know, is a smaller country and they can get the results very quickly. Everything and, is monitored very carefully, including by the Shin Bet. Yeah, and, and so so what's happening really is now what you're also putting the blame on these big mega 
pharma companies, uh, uh, American and international ones, is that they are collaborating with the apartheid regime by excluding half of the population from this free kind of experiment when you know very clearly, I mean, you're very familiar with the land there, some of these settlements are just a few hundred feet away from Palestinian towns and villages. I mean, there is no way you can separate the population and not to mention all the checkpoints and the Israeli soldiers coming in contact with Palestinians. Yeah, I think that's, that's a very valid point. Yes, I, I agree with you. And we also have to mention that um, <clears throat> there, there is also basically, um, you know, this apartheid system um, um, is, is so, um, you know, it is so, it is multi-layered, just like what you're seeing in the background, that you have all these systems of control that are put in place. And also, when we look at the way that Palestinians gain access to medical facilities and medical care, you can see that very clearly. Now, again, we don't have time to go into all the details, but but it is it is very clear. So so when we talk about the role of pharmaceutical companies from abroad, um, yes, I think they do have a say, and they shouldn't uh, uh, agree uh, to facilitate apartheid on their behalf. So is that a campaign? Quickly, we have a couple of minutes. Is there a campaign to kind of send a uh, strong message from? your organization and other, uh, you know, progressive Israelis that what you're doing is wrong. I mean, maybe you can get through to the Israeli government, but maybe you can make some headway with the big pharmaceutical companies, whether they are in Belgium or in the United States. So I'd like to take the opportunity that we are discussing very seriously the whole issue of vaccination these days and who gains access to these vaccinations and who doesn't and who don't. And we also have to put into the picture uh, um, basically the, the entirety of Africa, uh, a, a large part of Asia, etc. That you know, what, what, what about all these people? I mean, we really have to, to demand that, that all the people of the world, this is a global pandemic, all people of the world will have access. Uh, and we have even different uh, types of vaccinations. So, so it is definitely doable. The question is, again, uh, whether the people who are currently in power, uh, what do they do and whether they uh, basically act according to, uh, are they responsible enough? Do they uh, abide by their obligations? And we, we, the people of the world, obviously have to demand that. So, you know, this is a call from Palestine. Um, about full equality, both uh, in the legal sphere and also with uh, regard to access to medical care. And, so vaccination I, is not really a privilege. To the rest of the world, including these specific pharmaceutical companies. Uh, I think that um, it, also you mentioned that Israel is, is basically having this, holding this experiment here uh, with the pharmaceuticals, and we know we know about different things that are happening. And also at the same time, I will just mention that we know very well that Israel is also holding experiments in Gaza and the West Bank with regard to its weapon manufacturing. You know, they are they are selling to the world weapons that have been uh, uh, literally tested on Palestinians. And I don't know the facts about what they do with regard to the question of the pandemic and Gaza, for example. 
I wouldn't be surprised to learn in the future that there was quite a sinister approach that was also treating Gaza as some sort of a laboratory. I don't know that. I hope that I will be mistaken in the future. But but this is another concern that I have. What is Israel doing and should we allow it to experiment so freely on people and people's lives? Well, that's a valid question, uh, Rani. Rani, I want to thank you again for coming on Arab Talk. Uh, I'm glad that you got your two shots of the vaccine, so now you're thank safe. You and, Soon and, I hope that you will have access to it. And as hopefully, well. yeah, the vaccine should not be a privilege and everyone should, should have it. And we'll talk to you soon. Thank you very much. Well, that's the face and the voice of Ronnie Barkan uh, giving a very compelling analysis of medical apartheid, which we did touch upon last week, Jamal. And, uh, and before we dive into Ronnie's comments, which I think were spot on, you know, the the mainstream media here in the United States has been complicit, along with Big Pharma, in portraying the Israeli uh, pandemic response and their vaccination program as a model to be uh, celebrated in the world, when in fact, it's a model that needs to be criticized and denigrated as uh, immoral, unethical, and uh, should be called out for the medical apartheid that it's been engaging with. It has not vaccinated the bulk of the people in historic Palestine, as we know. And it's deliberately leaving out millions of Palestinians uh, in the cold. It's, it's really a, a painful example of what medical apartheid is. Yeah, well, absolutely. Just this is what actually Rani talked about, and I think he made a very good point. Of course, he 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 supports the Bethlehem's report, even though he's critical about uh, uh, some of the stuff that they've done before until uh, they kind of made up their mind and to call Israel as apartheid. He also kind of uh, talks about the exclusion of uh, Palestinians in diaspora. So when they talk about uh, only, you know, uh, what's happening on the ground, uh, it does not cover what happens to Palestinians uh, who have been ethnically cleansed or their children or grandchildren trying to return or even visit the country. So he takes it a step further. The other uh, part, when he starts talking about uh, the, remember last week we commented on the statement of the Israeli health minister. Yes. Uh, saying yes. that he's not responsible uh, for vaccinating uh, Palestinians. And we've discussed this in details. And how is this a violation of the Fourth Geneva Convention? And, uh, but then uh, Israel came under a lot of criticism internationally. Even in the United States, his statement was uh, carried uh, in U.S. media uh, when he said, I'm not responsible and I'm just paraphrasing to vaccinate uh, Palestinians, just like the Palestinian health, health minister is not uh, responsible for the dolphins in the sea. Some, some ludicrous statement, as usual, came under a lot of fire uh, internally and externally, and then the Israeli government decided to send 5,000 doses just of vaccine to, to Palestinian health workers. So uh, we're talking about the people who live between the Mediterranean Sea and the Jordan River, combined population of 15 to 16 million people, half of them, them or more even are Palestinians, and Palestinians are receiving only five thousand 
vaccines. Well, that's why that's I mean, what's why that's going to do. Right. And that's why it's medical apartheid. That's why it's unethical. That's why it's immoral. And that's why the, the news media continues to be complicit. And I'll give you an example, Jamal, that Bill Neely, a very well-known uh, correspondent for NBC News just a few days ago, did a five-minute story on the uh, amazing successes of the Israeli vaccination program, even put up a map to show, you know, how successful it is, interviewed Israeli officials, not a single word or mention of the, you know, six and a half, seven million Palestinians left in the cold, literally and figuratively, given that we're in the wintertime. And, you know, 5,000 uh, 5, doses of vaccine for, you know, six and a half uh, million people is just not going to cut it. And when B'Tselem said that Israel is an apartheid state, politically it's apartheid, but we know for sure now that it's also medically apartheid because the Palestinian COVID uh, pandemic is really hitting Palestinians very hard right now, Jamal. And of course, Palestinian health workers in the West Bank. What about Palestinian health workers in Gaza, Jamal? What about those individuals where the pandemic is especially difficult and pro problematic right now? We're hearing nothing. That's right. And, 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 and here is the, the thing, uh, Jess. I mean, Rani Barkan, of course, talks about, uh, you know, medical apartheid, not just because of COVID, pre-COVID. Because as you know, only Palestinians living in Jerusalem leave, uh, receive uh, uh, or under the Israeli national health care and Palestinians uh, in the West Bank. That's about 2.6, 2.7 million of them. Gaza, about another uh, 2 million there. They're excluded, and Israel plays this policy of stripping Palestinians living in Jerusalem from their health plan right. for the, the smallest reason. Like, let's say, if they get married to someone uh, from uh, the West Bank, uh, their children and, uh, and their wife does not receive, they don't receive health care. If they decide to live outside the borders or the boundaries of Jerusalem, they lose their uh, Israeli ID, therefore they lose their health plan. But I think what the important point here, because, you know, we know what's happening in Israel. We've been talking about it for ages. Uh, this is the first time people are using this uh, tabooed word, apartheid, the big A word. Even in, in U.S. media now you're reading about it. The U.S. media for the very first time actually has covered the Betselem story as breaking news. You know, usually they try to just ignore something like this happening. But the bigger story, Jess, and I think this is really important to emphasize, Israel has received their vaccine doses for free from Pfizer, that I know for sure, and, and, and Moderna. And... You know, those are big, gigantic companies that made that decision to give the vaccine to Israel as an experiment because they can study the effect on the population. Supposedly, Israel can deliver it very fast, and they've been delivering it very fast. But are they ignorant that Israel controls the, another six million Palestinians living in the West Bank and Gaza. That Are they ignorant about that, that they also no, have an obligation under the Fourth Geneva Convention? 
I, I have breaking news for you. They're not ignorant. Uh, the leaders of uh, Pfizer and Moderna and also AstraZeneca as well as, uh, you know, J&J, Johnson & Johnson, they're not ignorant of the political dynamics and political realities on the ground. Big Pharma decided to collude with the apartheid regime of Israel and decided to uh, collude with them and just giving free doses of vaccine uh, to uh, half of the population, barely half of the population of historic Palestine, leaving Palestinians in the cold and excluded from their right under the Geneva Convention, under medical ethics, their right to get vaccinated just like every Israeli. So I think you're right, Jamal. This is a huge story, big pharma in collusion with the apartheid state of Israel. And now I think what we need to do when we think about the BDS campaign and we think about other political efforts to call out, you know, companies that do business in um in settlements and occupied and excluding occupied territories, we need to call Big Pharma out just like we're calling out all the other BDS uh, companies that illegally do business. This is just as egregious, in my opinion, as any other uh, BDS, uh, 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 you know, invocation uh, to call out some of these companies. Well, then this is really the big story because, I mean, we expect that from Israel. I didn't expect any anything better that out of the goodness of their heart, they're going to take care of the well-being of the people in Gaza from a regime that counts the calories. We, people maybe right. have forgotten about this story, how Israel controls everything that is shipped into the Gaza Strip and they basically uh, let it trickle into there because right. they count the calories of Palestinians and they don't allow certain material to enter, rebuilding for construction and so forth. They control every single item basically uh, going through uh, the, uh, the uh, you know, the Eretz uh, um, cross checkpoint. points, uh, ship checkpoints. And, and now uh, we have a, a global catastrophe, uh, Jess, and I didn't expect them to order. If they were paying for it, they weren't going to order more vaccines to give to Palestinians. And well, they are in control. And they are in control. Con they control every aspect of Palestinian lives. But I did not expect, once I started delving more into it and knowing that uh, Pfizer and other companies have made a deal to give Israel the vaccine for free when many countries don't have it. And we haven't even talked about other countries in Africa and Asia well, and South America. Well, actually, but, we have we have spoken about it, Jamal, and there's... No, a we spoke about that, but I'm just saying, you know, I'm talking on... on, on, on <laughs> these are separate issues, even though they're connected, you're talking about Big Pharma is involved, not excluding countries because they can't buy it or they don't have the means to purchase it or deliver it. Is We are talking about Big Pharma colluding with an apartheid regime, which basically uh, runs people's life according to, do, to two separate laws, uh, you know, and, and they're aware, you know, I mean, they have scientists that the population between 
The Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea is about 15 to 16 million, and yet they've only taken care of half of that population. Totally excluded on ethnic lines, half the population. Well, that's right, Jamal. And uh, I do think that's the big story. But I will tell you that the apartheid regime of Israel colluding with Big Pharma doesn't stop at the Israeli uh, checkpoint. It actually goes further in in terms of what's happening in Africa and what's happening in Central and South America, because not everybody is getting that vaccine for free. And really poor countries are being forced to not have access to the vaccines as freely as Israelis are getting. We have to rely on countries like Canada, Japan, and New Zealand to buy excess vaccine that is not free. They're buying it and attempting to distribute it in Africa, in Central America, and South America. Because this story, if it were really to get out and people were to really hear about apartheid medicine being practiced in Israeli and the collusion in Israel, and with collusion with big pharma, people would truly be shocked at the level of uh, immorality I mean, and un- it's, unethical it's, behavior that big pharma. But this is this is nothing new not to out. big. Ph- you know what? You know what killed me uh, yesterday is the news I read on I think uh, CNBC website. Basically, they just had a report that made made it sound like. Oh, uh, it's such a great thing that Israel is doing. Said Israel has decided to transfer 5,000 doses to the Palestinian Authority to give to its healthcare workers. And they stopped short of painting the full picture. Just imagine people in this country. Imagine if the news in this country that uh, the Trump administration or now the Biden administration has decided to buy enough vaccine for whites only and excluded blacks and excluded Latinos. Just well, just imagine. Well, we yeah. kind of do have that here, Jamal, unfortunately, because there's well, a little on, bit of there's a little uh, bit of medical apartheid going on in well, the United States. Well, this is on States socioeconomic, too. socioeconomic. Because the reality is, Jamal, Latinos. African-Americans, folks of colors, are getting substantially less access and availability of the vaccine than everybody else. So we can't let this country off the hook. We have to call out the apartheid regime of Israel for sure. And we have to call out Big Pharma. The difference here is part of a systematic, you know, you know, 200-year, 400-year process of, uh, of doing uh, the effects of, you know, the long-term effects of ethnic cleansing and slavery here have, you know, taken their toll on the African-American community. But we have uh, health disparities and health inequities here, too, that mirror what the Israelis are doing to Palestinians in historic Palestine. It's just that in apartheid Israel, Jamal, it's just more egregious. And I would say the other difference, people don't care about it. The media doesn't care about medical apartheid uh, with the Israeli regime. Uh, they will pay attention to it here with Latinos, African-Americans, and other communities of color not getting vaccinated at a, as high a rate. But when it comes to the Israeli regime uh, and its apartheid practices, they get a pass, not only from CNBC, NBC, CNN, CBS, all of them, and they need to be called out. Well, um, 
I'm still waiting for that story to kind of... It hasn't come out, Jamal. People to start talking about it. And it's not. definitely on a global level, I don't know what is it going to be, the World Health Organization or others, other human rights organizations should hold Big Pharma responsible for what happens in Palestine, for the mere fact of basically giving vaccine for free to one segment of the population and ignoring the, the other segment well, of here, the population. Sure, Jamal, but... You know, I said this last week, and I'm going to say it again. Uh, the Israelis are really kind of um, stupid and ignorant in their racism and medical apartheid. Because historic Palestine is not that big, as we know, Jamal. And if you choose not to vaccinate half of the population in historic Palestine and think that you're going to be protecting one population over another by vaccinating one and not the other. You are not just delusional. You're in another, you're, you're in, you're not in reality because unless the entire world gets vaccinated, unless everybody gets vaccinated, unless there's global herd immunity, we're headed for some very, very dark times. And the Israelis can't outrun COVID-19, especially if it mutates. It knows no borders. So they're doing this not just out of ignorance and malice, but they're not in reality. Well, obviously they're doing it uh, because of ignorance and malice. And the proof to this is they try to kind of, uh, you know, uh, calm the situation down by doing another stupid uh, mistake by sending just 5,000 doses and hoping that uh, the news will disappear and uh, people will applaud them for doing this when they are in fact under uh, international law, under the Fort Geneva Convention, responsible for all the population under their control, which includes the West Bank oh. and Gaza. Right, Jamal, but just one last point. I'm sorry to kind of keep hammering this. The Israelis are going to have surges because their, their extremist right-wing uh, uh, ultra-Orthodox religious communities are refusing to take the vaccine, and that's not they a small are. number of people. And so, others, actually, they are. They are. Even young people are refusing. Israel, by the way, is down to asking for anyone 16 or over uh, to come to go and get the vaccine. While we are in this country, they're still working on 75 and uh, and over. Anyway, we will keep monitoring this topic, uh, Jess. You're listening to Arab Talk on KPOO San Francisco 89.5 FM. And I want to shift gears here and go to domestic issues in the news for the entire week is the story of the Repo Republican representative Marjorie Taylor Greene which faces today, maybe even uh, this will be by the end of the day, a vote to strip her from her committee assignments uh, over uh, her history, basically, of uh, trafficking uh, racism, anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, conspiracy theories, uh, and including, by the way, supporting uh, violence against Democrats, uh, uh, prying, uh, prior to taking office. So, uh, the of course, the Republicans uh, are resisting this, um, of doing this. Uh, I mean, I'm sure you watched yesterday uh, 
I did. their leader uh, McCarthy I did. coming uh, coming and issuing a statement and saying and this is makes you uh, lose hair and I don't have much of it left uh, basically <laughs> is he saying just that well this happened before she was uh, you know elected to the house and now she can just say a statement or she said a statement that she she denies or she refutes or she apologize. She didn't apologize or she kind of changes, backtracks what she, she said. She didn't about. apologize, Jamal. Yeah, she's backtracking, said, yeah, 9-11 did happen before she said it didn't happen. Yes, those those children that got murdered in, in schools, that wasn't a conspiracy theory and it did happen. Uh, she was talking about, you know, that, uh, of course, statements like uh, the Rothschilds were, were behind and the Jews behind uh, the fires uh, using laser beams from space, setting fires in California to make money. I mean, some crazy stuff. I, I, I'm just feeling nervous just reciting the stuff uh, she has said, uh, just the racist stuff. And then he came and said, well, this happened before. This is like akin to me, just like, uh, well... Jeffrey Dahmer uh, getting elected to Congress and uh, renouncing cannibalism. And they said, okay, that's fine. He renounced cannibalism. So now we can have him as a member of Congress. I mean, well, we are talking now about just stripping her from committees, important committees like the education and others. Not getting this. This person shouldn't be in Congress, Jess. But, but Jamal, it, it's, it's actually even a little worse than what you just said. If Jeffrey Dahmer renounced cannibalism. That's better uh, than what Marjorie Taylor Greene has done because she hasn't renounced the totality of her racism and her white supremacy. In fact, if you look at her tweets yesterday, she said, the Democrats are making me stronger. Coming after me was making me stronger. It just proves my point. She is not remorseful. She is not contrite. She has not apologized. She represents a segment of this society, Jamal, a cancer in our society of white supremacy and conspiracy theorists. It's not an insignificant part of our society, and it's fomented continuously by now leadership in the Republican Party, not just limited to Kevin McCarthy, the minority leader in the House, but let's not forget the ex-president of the United States, Donald J. Trump, is still fomenting these ideas, has still not done anything to uh, combat these ideas. We, we, we are in a very bad situation, Jamal. I think we have to face up to this as a country. The Republicans are facing extinction as a party as they once knew it. Because if they're unable to announce this kind of white supremacy, this kind of racism, this kind of, and I'll just say it, denial of reality, if they are unable to confront a congresswoman who denies truth and reality, they will never win another election. They are headed at their own peril for their own demise. This is an easy one, Jamal. This is easy. You have a congressman. It's easy for you and me, Jess, but I don't know if it's easy for uh, that segment of society, the examples of which we saw uh, basically invading uh, the capital, because uh, I don't know if I agree with your statement that they will never win another election, because obviously people in Georgia 
voted her in, voted to send her to Congress. I mean, here we are, and I feel what has been weakened is the institution because they have set the bar so low that someone with a history, long history of anti-Semitism, racism, Islamophobia, etc., can get elected to, and now they can get elected to Congress, and now all that they are debating is whether they, she should be on a committee. They're not even talking about expelling her no, that's from right. Congress, and that's really the danger part. But I don't, no. not sure. Like all these uh, uh, people, like uh, Ted Cruz, people like her and Rubio, and, they they have people behind them. They have people who give them money sure. and people who vote for them. Sure. Let me just restate what I should have said. Of course, white supremacists will win more elections. But what I meant to say, and, and to be more precise, whether or not they could take over the House, whether they could take over the Senate, and whether they could take over the executive branch again, the Republicans basically have a year or so to either confront this and remove it like you have to remove any cancer or they're going to accept it and see if somehow they can embrace psychosis, denial of reality, and denial of truth with typical Republican principles. You can't have it both ways, I believe. That's what Kevin McCarthy's trying to do, Jamal. He's saying, well, Liz Cheney's not a bad person. We support her. But I'd like to remind you something, Jamal. Did you know that Marjorie Taylor Greene, when she gave her comment to the caucus of Republicans after she was done, she got a standing ovation in yes, the Congress. And and also, uh, you know, you mentioned Liz Cheney. That's just kind of related to this, that, that people actually voted to uh, against uh, Liz Cheney's leadership, even though she, she managed to stay on. There were, I think, 46 uh, congressmen and congresswomen who voted to get rid of her as the number th- uh, three uh, lead you know, on the leadership of the of the GOP. Right. But here is the deflection. Just I mean, we keep hearing about this cancel culture. That's what Marjorie Taylor was talking about uh, actually yesterday after she was backtracking on some of her statements. Now she says. She's the victim of the cancel culture. White supremacists are the victim of cancel culture. So what's that? Here's what it is, Jamal. What what it is, is accountability culture. And what's happening to these extremists, these white supremacist extremists, when they're held to account for their hate speech, when they're held to account for their incitement to sedition, when they're held to account to our justice system, they call it cancel culture instead of calling it what it is. And what it is, Jamal, is if you act in a way that's illegal, immoral, unethical, you are held to account. And it seems like white supremacists like to refer to cancel culture as uh, an excuse for being held accountable to the systems that we have here in this country. So the other thing in their deflection, aside from the cancel culture, and this has come up before, uh, just is, of course, when one of their own is under attack, who do they bring up? Ilhan Omar. Omar. Yeah. So it's just like out of the blue, just like Donald Trump was always like attacking her. They go after the one of the Muslim women in Congress, one of the women uh, who's black. And also, of course, uh, you know, she's an immigrant. 
she wears a hijab. She embodies all their fears. And so all of a sudden, they're saying, well, I don't know why you're going after, uh, you know, uh, Marjorie uh, Green. Uh, the Democrats uh, gave Ilhan Omar a pass. The, there's no... There's no correlation and no equivalency between Ilhan Omar, who accepts reality, who accepts truth. And when she made and she was called out on some comments which were at the very least insensitive, you know what Ilhan Omar did? She apologized. She apologized verbally in person on air. She apologized in a written form. She took responsibility for making insensitive comments, Jamal. Marjorie Taylor Greene, and this is what all the Republicans are doing who are part of this QAnon white supremacist group. What they're doing, Jamal, if you look at it, they're doubling down. Marjorie Greene is not contrite. She's doubling down. She's raising money. She's saying they're attacking me for what I believe in. And what she believes in, Jamal, is a crazy world in which Israeli lasers are starting fires near where we live in Northern California. Not Israeli lasers, as she said. It's lasers funded by the Rothschilds, so Jewish lasers, just like to distinguish. She's spreading this trope of anti-Semitism that the Jews are behind everything to make it's money. It's crazy, man. Because well, of I... it. And, 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 sh- and she didn't apologize. Actually, she didn't backtrack on this one here. And the thing is, she denied this. She denied, she denied a lot of things, but there are screenshots These are things that not only that she said in public and they were recorded, many of them, and the others are all over uh, her Facebook and uh, Twitter, uh, Instagram and and social media accounts. And then she says, oh, I I don't think I said this. It's all there, the evidence. And we're not talking about a statement or two you've mentioned, uh, you know, that Ilhan attributed to Ilhan Omar. This is many, many years in the making of all kinds of crazy and well, racist stuff. I, I, I don't spewing. think the Republicans are going to be able to come clean, Jamal. And I think the Democrats, if they're smart enough, they'll use it in every single congressional uh, race coming up in 2022 against every, for, in, both in the, in the House as well as the Senate, because uh, they're not going to be able to come come through this and Donald Trump is not going to back down. He's going to form a patriot party. And as I predicted, I'm sorry to say this, white supremacy and Donald Trump are not going away after this election. On this bad note, we're coming <laughs> to another end of uh, to an end of another show, Jess. So we uh, keep watching. We got lots of news. Keep watching. Go to our website, arabtalkradio.com, to download the latest episodes, and we'll keep informing you in the next coming weeks. We'll see you next week.